Please take a Bible and open to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, page 909. If you're following in the blue pew Bibles in front of you, page 909. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. As you turn there, I wonder if you've been following the news of what has been termed a revival on the campus of Asbury College in Kentucky. The days-long event sparked national interest. Many people made a kind of pilgrimage to the school to be a part of what was happening there. I have no intention of commenting any more on that. But I wonder, as you've heard about that event, I wonder if you've had the same question that I've had. How would I, how would we know... If we were in the middle of a God-driven work of his Holy Spirit. Have we been given any indication, any instruction in recognizing exactly what the Holy Spirit does when he works? Well, it just so happens that we are in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, this is one of those mountaintop events of the whole story of Scripture that is commonly referred to as the day of Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit comes. So it's a good place to get answers to those questions I just asked. We're continuing our newly started study through the book of Acts. And as we saw last week in chapter 1, this book chronicles the work of Jesus through his sent messengers to spread his message all over the world. And in doing this, by this way, working through his spirit, we will anticipate watching Jesus throughout the pages of this book advance his rule and his kingdom. As Acts 2, that we're going to read through in a moment, as it happens you should know a little bit of context, context about what is going on. Right now, as we enter this chapter, there is an annual Jewish festival going on in the city of Jerusalem called the Feast of Weeks, which started on a day 50 days after another specific day in the Jewish calendar. That's why it's called Pentecost. The feast was a week of celebrating the fruitfulness of the harvest season. And since this, the center of Jewish worship was the temple in Jerusalem, many Jews had come from all over the Roman Empire to observe this feast. Meanwhile, as we saw last week, Jesus, having now ascended, has left his followers, the apostles, an instruction to wait. To wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes. What happens on this day both explains what many parts of the Old Testament were, were looking forward to and anticipates what will happen as the New Testament and church history unfold from this point on. Now, if you just scan, you can see this is a rather large chapter. And since it is a large chapter, I'm not going to read it all now, but we're going to read through it as we go. But 
if you're not familiar at all with what we're going to read, to say that this was a significant day in the history of the church would be a huge understatement. There is so much happening here. And a great deal related to the rest of Scripture. And we just won't be able to look at it all. But one, one clarifying comment that I hope helps as we begin. The events we're going to read about, I understand, and, and it's okay if you take a different opinion, but I understand they happened once for a specific reason at a specific time. This one-time event visibly demonstrated that the promise of Jesus to send his Holy Spirit had in fact happened. And now the ministry of Jesus would be carried out in this world by his spirit, working through the apostles first and then through the church. For us, those apostles died a long time ago. And that visible church through their ministry was established and has been passed on. And except for areas that have no gospel presence... My belief is that the presence of the Holy Spirit will primarily be seen in and through the faithful gospel witness of the church today. Feel free to disagree with me. But I just want you to know that that's kind of in view as I bring this God's word to you. Pentecost was a once in the church's lifetime event. But hear me also as I say this. This one-time event teaches us not only how the Holy Spirit worked on that one day, but I think it teaches us how he is still working today. Pentecost gives us a framework, a paradigm for how the Holy Spirit works. I want to persuade you of this as we look at Acts. And this is the argument scripture is making. Here it is, if you want to write it down. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus-focused word witness. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus-focused word witness. This is how people are saved. And this is how the church is filled. We're going to take that in two parts. My prayer is that we see that his spirit is, in fact, at work in us now. And that we are encouraged to depend on his spirit and engage in his witness and respond to his gospel and live his life. So here it is, the first part of where we're going from here. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus-focused word witness. I think we see this in verse 1 through 36. I'm going to begin by reading the first few verses, first three verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So the promised Holy Spirit evidently comes to Jesus' followers who were waiting. And there's no mistaking that it is him who has arrived. In a scripture that mirrors how God met Moses on Mount Sinai, 
to give the law. The Holy Spirit comes now to give himself with the sound of wind and the appearance of fire over those he came upon. Through supernatural signs, the Holy Spirit is indicating that he, in fact, was there. But unlike before, in the way that the Spirit would have worked before, God would have worked, before when God's presence only showed to a consecrated priest once a year on the inside of the Holy Holies in the temple, now in this room, not the temple, there are 120 people, according to Acts 1, experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside them, giving them his power, just as Jesus said. A massive shift is occurring. Right here about how God works in his people. This is the beginning of a new age built on a new covenant. Whatever was remaining of the Jewish sacrificial system built around the temple ended at the cross and surely ends here. Jesus made the once and for all sacrifice at the cross. The Holy Spirit does what the law can't do. It comes and brings into our hearts the ability to desire and live in obedience to God in a way we couldn't have without the death, resurrection, and coming of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's power was apparently not only evident to the people in the room, it soon spills out into the Jerusalem streets as the Holy Spirit indwells people and they start speaking in different languages. Look at verse 4 through verse 12. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, read languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Now, in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus had commissioned his apostles to go and be sent to be witnesses beyond Jerusalem. But to get his kingdom advance started here, Jesus decided to bring the nations to Jerusalem. Showing his power to unify all things under his son, God ordains a temporary reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember there, he, he split the nations in judgment for their pride for giving them, by giving them different languages so that they couldn't understand each other. But now he brings them all together to hear one message through all the different languages. Now remember, remember, even through that which makes us most diverse, our different languages, God can still work to make us one. We pray that God would allow us as a church to engage in a multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual ministry as partners or as those who carry out that work here so that all might hear about Jesus. Now, 
you notice, many of the people who heard this sound, what's going on in this language and hearing mighty works of God being said, they don't have an explanation for it. They ask in verse 8, how is it that we hear this? And you notice others skeptically mocking it all, writing the apostles off as morning drunks. But an explanation will soon be given. As the apostle Peter stands up and speaks. And as I read, whether you're a a kid or an adult, see if you can identify Peter's reason for why all these amazing things are happening. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand. That I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad. And my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what is Peter's explanation for the things that the crowd couldn't explain? Well, His whole sermon makes this one point. The events at Pentecost are happening because the crucified, resurrected, and reigning King Jesus sent his Holy Spirit 
all of which the word of God explained and anticipated. I love how the first thing the first apostle does after receiving the Holy Spirit is to preach a Jesus-focused, scripture-based sermon. Not only is this an example in this passage of how the Spirit works, but also an example to me of how I want to teach God's word. And what, for you, what you should be looking for when you're listening to God's word. All scripture points to Jesus. So in this passage, Peter quotes Joel 2, there in verse 17 through 21. Showing that God had Pentecost in mind way back then. So that when it happened by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. When it finally came to be his words, people would perk up. And realize, as verse 21 says, this must be the day of salvation. And where would that salvation come from? From the one that King David wrote about in the Old Testament Psalms. From the king that came after him that he called Lord in Psalm 110, which is quoted in verse 34 and 35. The king who went into the grave like David, but who, unlike David, came out of the grave. The king who, through his death and life, show us the path to life. Peter is saying that the entire witness of the word of God that the Jewish people had in their law, in their wisdom writings, in their prophetic writings, points to Jesus, the crucified and resurrected king. So when we pray and gather and pray and pray on our own that God would maintain a faithful witness to his word in this church, this is what we're asking for. This kind of Jesus focus as we open his word. If you go back to Luke 24 later today and read through it, you'll see Jesus, after he was resurrected, walking down a road talking with two men who don't recognize him. There, Jesus explains that all scripture is about him. And after he leaves them and they realize that they have been with the risen Jesus, they describe the experience this way. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. In his final days, Jesus showed his followers how to teach the scriptures with him as the focus. And then when Jesus leaves, he sends the spirit. And as soon as the spirit comes to dwell in Jesus' followers, what do they start doing? They start teaching the scriptures with Jesus as the focus. If at the start of this new covenant community, if at the dawn of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and if in the supernatural revelation of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' people were focused on how the word of God reveals the son of God, shouldn't we be focused on that today? No, I don't think Pentecost will ever be repeated. But... What the Holy Spirit unfurled on that day still continues even in our presence this morning. We are opening the scriptures together. And in them, we are seeing Jesus. And in that, we are experiencing the movement of the Spirit of God. 
The reason that we can even do this, that we can open our Bibles, that we can hear it with understanding, that we can be convinced of its relevance for us, that we can take home with us a very high view of Jesus Christ and his reign in our life is because the Holy Spirit is active in our hearts and in our gathering. His aim and intention at Pentecost was to raise the sinful and weary and broken and separated human race to see that Jesus was dead but is alive. The Spirit is not, I assure you, interested in giving himself to a side ministry where people get cool spiritual abilities that amaze and astound but have nothing to do with Jesus. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus, and he wants us to see Jesus, and he wants us to know Jesus. He desires to exalt Jesus and put the whole historical spotlight on who Jesus is and what he has done to bring salvation and life to dead and ruined sinners. And if that is the Holy Spirit's aim, Lord, please help our church to have no other ministry than the one that does the same. Jesus exalting witness and none else. Faithful gospel teaching or shut the doors. Worship of Jesus the King and with God's help refusing to allow our hearts to bow to any other idol. We must have the Holy Spirit empower us for this church. We must. And so we must continue to ask him to work. Work in our hearts individually to hunger for his word and go mining it for the treasure of Jesus that is hidden in every page. Work in our hearts that when we find him, the pearl of greatest price, we not only seek to have him for ourselves, but we yearn for others to have a share in him. Work in our hearts to resolve to tell others about him and take them the same scriptures where the Holy Spirit showed you Jesus Christ and show them as well. I want to encourage you believers here that you begin praying, if you aren't already, that God would show you a person who doesn't know Jesus in your life that you could read the Bible with. One person. Start making that your prayer. That the Holy Spirit would give you a burden that you feel and can't be rid of until you are actively walking another person To the place where the Holy Spirit promises to work through the message of Jesus found in his word. If you don't know how to do that or that sounds really scary, I understand. That's okay. But don't let it, don't let it keep you from asking. Don't let it keep you from trusting him to walk you in it. He, he aims to use his people to spread Jesus' word. Don't you in your heart who loves him, don't you want to be a part in that? So don't let fear derail you. Satan would love nothing more. So if you don't know how, just say, I don't know how. And come talk to me. Come talk to another pastor. Go to a person in, in our church who you suspect might know. Let them train you in this. And if you're here and you don't understand God's word or Jesus or much of what I've said this morning, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. I hope you come back. As I've already talked about Jesus, the Savior for sinners, 
As I mentioned those men earlier that their hearts burned in them, I wonder if you feel that. I hope so. I pray that you do. The Holy Spirit would have you and help you know Jesus, and we want that for you. We want you to know Jesus. We want a burning in your heart to lead you to know him here. You are in the right place. In fact, the very thing that happened when Peter explained the gospel to the crowd in in Jerusalem is the very thing that he wants you to know. In the rest of Acts 2, we see what happens when the Spirit empowers witness. That's the second part of my sermon this morning. By the Spirit-empowered, Jesus-focused word witness, people are saved. And the church is filled. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Starting in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any has need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And when Luke writes there at the beginning about the, the, the listener's response, that they were cut to, heart, to the heart, It brought to my mind about how the Old Testament repeatedly talks about how stubborn Israel was to listen to God's prophets. Even though they as a people were marked off from other nations by the physical sign of circumcision, their resistance to God's message showed that their hearts were no different than anyone else's. The word of God had not yet penetrated into their very being. So the prophets would tell the people what they needed was actually not a physical circumcision. They needed a spiritual one. They needed to happen in their heart. A kind of spiritual surgery where the stubbornness would be removed. And in its place, a soft receptiveness to hear and obey the voice of God comes in its place. And the, pro- and the prophets did promise that a day would come when that would happen by the Holy Spirit. That he would bring new hearts. And when he did, people would turn to the Lord. And here is the day. That happens in Acts 2.37. The people listening have a soft readiness to hear about Jesus. And they ask the perfect question. What should we do? 
It's no good to us if we only hear the word and not do it. Is there any area of your life right now where you are only hearing but not doing? Beware. It is Satan's deceptive power that tells you you're okay to hear and not do what God is telling you to do. The Holy Spirit's power is evidence through hearing that leads to obedience. These listeners, they're cut to the heart. But what is it that Peter said that brings such conviction, that brings such a need for immediate resolution? Well, it's the revelation that they too, though maybe they weren't there at the cross that day, they are complicit They had had a part in the death of Jesus, God's anointed deliverer, the Messiah. And not only that, but the king of kings they killed was very much alive and sitting in the position of absolute authority over them. The coming of the spirit before it is a guarantee of salvation to you, it is a sign of your impending judgment as long as you are resisting the rule of King Jesus in your life. You see, Jesus died because of sinners, all sinners. That's why when we sang earlier, come ye sinners, even those of us who understand ourselves to be saved are singing to ourselves. The world was created by God to be good and operate according to his good way and under his good rule. But when Adam and Eve, our our father and our mother, the first man and woman disobeyed God, they permanently destroyed the goodness of God's order By choosing to rule themselves instead of have God rule. If ever that curse is going to be undone. It could not happen through a descendant of the first sinners. We all sin like they did. It had to happen through a sinless one. The reality of our sin and how it destroys us in the world. Is why Jesus came here and lived a perfect life. But that sin not only destroys, it also demands a punishment. Because we in our sin have rebelled and disobeyed against the almighty God, the king, the holy one, the creator of the universe. That kind of cosmic rebellion requires a punishment of eternal magnitude. That's what hangs over the head of every rebel against God. And in order for that punishment to be removed... A sinless substitute had to come and take the place of the sinner. And this is what Jesus did. This is what he did in his sacrificial death on the cross. He takes the place of sinners. He suffers our death, which falls on him. Because he lives sinlessly, he in his death is able to provide forgiveness. What Peter promises. Forgiveness of our sins. And give us righteous standing before God's law. If death fell on Jesus, it cannot now fall eternally on any who are trusting in him. There are many good reasons to believe in Jesus. One of them being what happened after he died. Three days later, he, after dying, rose from the grave. He proved that he was a king unlike any other The one who came to fight our spiritual enemies of sin and death and won. 
So Peter's listeners are realizing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the Jesus-focused witness, that they were the kind of sinners who put to death the Son of God. They realized that they were the kind of people who had resisted living in happy acceptance of the rule of King Jesus in their life. They realized that to continue in that position, they would be justly punished for their wicked rebellion. So if you are in that position this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit would come and convince you of the same. Perhaps he already is. If so, here's what we must do to be saved. Repent. Believe in Jesus. And follow him in obedience. Turn away from your rebellious life. See that it is your sin that drove Jesus to the cross. Look to Jesus to take away your guilt and your shame. To forgive you and give you new life in him. This is a sure promise. A sure promise in scripture to you. If you do that, you will receive salvation from Jesus. The Lord is calling people to himself. And he invites you to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And once you do, and everyone who has done that, know for certain that you are the king's. You are his. And you are under his good rule. And nothing can take you out of it. This is what baptism is. Peter said that this public act, verifying that the Holy Spirit gift that brings repentance and belief had been given to to them, he says, be baptized now to show it. If you want to follow Jesus, if you believe that he has saved you, but haven't been baptized, that's what you should do next. Come talk to me about that. Baptism doesn't save you, but it does communicate to others that you now are with and for King Jesus, with and for his people. I find it interesting in verse 40 that part of Peter's message was that responding to the gospel message in repentance, faith, and baptism is a way we participate in our own rescue from the world that is dying. And while the Lord calls people to himself in verse 39, verse 21 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, When God saves, it's the Holy Spirit who initiates with power and conviction. And with the grace he gives, we respond in faith and repentance. These are the means that God has given every Christian, given to you to protect you from spiritual disaster that could befall you in this world. Faith and repentance. His spirit, his word, his grace, your faithful response, turning away from sin, trusting in Christ. Your pride will tell you that you don't struggle with sin now, that you're saved, but that's not of the Spirit. Unwillingness to leave sin behind, that's not what the Spirit gives. A desperate clinging day by day to the cross of Jesus that presents broken sinners healed and restored, that's the Spirit-led life. That's where it begins. Hopeful confidence that in every season, trial, disappointment, and failing King Jesus is ruling and directing our lives with clear and certain future with him. That's life in the spirit. Christian, you have the spirit in you. And with him, everything everything needed for life and godliness. The process outlined in verse 37 to 41 is the same one we follow here and aim to follow as we bring people into membership in our church. 
Faith in Jesus, evidence of repentance, baptism added to the church. If you're curious, this is one of the key passages about why we call ourselves a Baptist church, in fact. It's why we think conscientious belief in Jesus should always precede baptism. It's also why we're careful not to baptize a person until they're ready to take all the responsibilities of being a committed part of a local church. So kids, let me talk to you. If you're right now believing in Jesus and you want to follow him and you want to be, obey him, that's wonderful. I'm so thankful that God's spirit is working inside you to point you to want to live for Jesus. And you may be hearing me say this and say, I want to be baptized too, Philip. That's wonderful. Parents, encourage your children when they make a profession of faith at a young age. Treat them as Christians. Know that we as pastors rejoice in the faith of the little ones as much as we do the new faith of adults. But discerning the genuine faith of fruit of faith and repentance can be harder to do with a child who wants to obey Jesus. But who also wants to please you, their believing parent. And that's just hard. I don't know if I have any kind of solution for that problem. I know I don't. So you may find that we as pastors will counsel a period of patient waiting and prayer in a young believer's life to discern evidence of faith and repentance that is truly their own before we proceed with baptism as a church. We want to make sure in affirming our children's faith, we are giving them a helpful assurance of what we can say we confidently see and not potentially hurting their spiritual future by prematurely affirming faith without evidence. Parents, when is your believing child ready to be baptized? When they're ready to express their own faith in Jesus? When they evidence true repentance? When they walk in obedience that is some way independent of their obedience to you as a parent? And when they can fulfill the covenant responsibilities of church membership? If they aren't there yet, it does not mean that they are not a Christian. It just means that you can encourage them to wait until they're ready to join the church to be baptized. It's not about a certain age. It's about carefully discerning and encouraging the fruit of the Spirit's work in their life for their long-term spiritual good. I hope that's helpful. Please come talk to me or one of the other pastors if you have questions. Now, as we think about wanting to have a Jesus-focused, spirit-empowered witness in our church, we can be encouraged that we will, can and expect that God will use that to save people, both our children and adults. We are living in a church age where God has promised that his spirit is going to be working through the world with his word when his people witness in order to save people. And what God plans and what God promises, he does. So as we stay faithful to his ways and plant the seed of the gospel, the Lord will keep bringing on his promise a harvest of saved souls. No, it may not be 3,000 people at one time. But the people will come by the same way the first believers did. By the spirit-empowered, 
Jesus-focused witness of the world word, people are saved. And by the same way, the church is filled. That's what we see in verse 42 through 47, which I read earlier. This life now being shared by the people of God. Notice the progression then. If you, if you pull yourself out to all of Acts 2, notice the progression of where, how the Holy Spirit is moving. Look at the movement. Through Peter's explanation, we learn that the Holy Spirit has come to earth, sent by King Jesus in heaven, to dwell in Jesus' people. Those people witness to the resurrected King Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to those who aren't yet part of Jesus' kingdom. And as those people respond in faith, repentance, and baptism, they receive the Holy Spirit for themselves. And with the Holy Spirit, all those who believe in Jesus form a community of believers where they live life together by the power of that Spirit. So in short, the progression of Acts 2 is this. Jesus comes to live in his church through the Holy Spirit. And once the Spirit takes up residence in his church, the church is where we should expect to see the Spirit working. That's the pattern that Acts will prove. So in an area, which we'll come to, where there is no church, you see signs, you see wonders, you see healing miracles, you see resurrections even through the apostles' ministry. All of that gives credibility to what the apostles are preaching about Jesus. It accelerates the establishing of churches. But once those churches exist, it's interesting how the miracles outside the churches stop in Acts. I say outside the churches because there's still plenty of supernatural activity happening where you find people committed to following Jesus together. You see the supernatural life, the kind of thing that's happening in verse 42 to 47. You see spirit working in supernatural ways to bring sincere devotion to God's word. Life together fellowship. Praying together kind of life. Generous living. Sacrificial giving. Loving each other sacrificially. Gladness. Mutual delight in gathering to praise God. Friends, that is the spirit at work. When you get sick, you go to the pharmacist for a remedy. You take the medicine because it brings healing. Perhaps you are spiritually sick today. You find yourself flagging in your faith, slipping into sin, discouraged in your trials, apathetic to the word of God. It would be a huge mistake, huge mistake to let that create distance between you and the church. What you need is the medicine. You got to get closer into the life of the spirit that's available here. Open yourself up to what he provides through the love of his people. Life in the church is where we live life in the spirit. We are where God resides. We are the temple where his spirit lives. We are the kingdom of priests he set apart to minister to each other in our need. I think we often can think or other people that we know think that the real deal revival that the spirit brings shows up when people have a short-term emotional response to God. That in order for it to be really the spirit, it has to be spontaneous and newsworthy and irregular. That unexpected things must occur. But I think Acts 2 proves the opposite. 
It teaches us that when the Spirit of God saves people, he gathers them as local churches and fills and directs them with the Spirit to love each other. And that is the work of the Spirit that he aims to sustain over the long term of his church's life. That it happens by predictable, regular, expected ways, but supernatural nonetheless. I want to be filled with the Spirit just as much as the next Christian. And by that, I don't mean numbers of peoples in the pews. Unless the Lord cares to lead us there, I don't care if our church is over 300, 300, let alone 3,000. I mean being filled with life in God, in his kingdom together. I want, and I know you want, for us to experience and witness the Spirit's power. And though we've not had a weeks-long service happening in our building, I think we are filled and being filled with his Spirit. This morning and every Sunday, I witness and hear us singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 5 tells me that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I see us preferring each other, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this outpost of Jesus' kingdom on earth, I see a hunger for God's word. I see us intentionally coming to his table this morning. I see us repenting of our sins. I see us reconciling with those we've sinned against. I see us taking this meal in faith as a symbol of our union to each other because of Christ's broken body and shed blood to make us his unified people. I see generous giving to the work of this church that supports gospel ministry through prayer and giving elsewhere. I have heard your testimonies of God's gracious work in your lives and God is adding people to us who have the same heart. The Spirit is here and working. The day of Pentecost was a unique moment where the Holy Spirit worked in a significant way. And through it, we learn the ongoing Holy Spirit movement is still happening today through Jesus-focused word witness that brings salvation and fills the church. May God keep moving in that way here. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray. Jesus, we pray in your name. Holy Spirit, we ask that as you were gracious to do at Pentecost, you would continue to be gracious to do among us. Focus us around Jesus in our witness. And by your work, through your message, save people. And fill this church with yourself. Encourage us with all the ways we already see you making good on that promise, creating us a desire to ask you to do even more. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to the cross to die in our place as sinners and raise us to life with you. We remember your sacrifice now as we come to your table. 
Lord, even this reminder, as we participate in it, please strengthen our faith in you, the resurrected King. Please unite our hearts around you and with each other through this. Lord, may it be a way by which one of the many you equip and encourage us for your ministry that you'd have us do this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.